On the latest edition of the podcast, I welcome L.A.'s favorite son, Evan Barnes. He now writes for the Memphis Commercial Appeal to talk about the HBO Winning Time series that chronicles the rise of the Showtime Lakers. He is one of the favorite sons of Los Angeles. Uh, University of San Diego alum. I first encountered him when he was at the Daily Breeze, and then he bumped over, did some work at the LA Daily News as well in the Valley. Uh, the great uh, Evan Barnes joins us with the from the Memphis Commercial Appeal. Is it four years now, Evan, that we've been out in Memphis? It has been four years, believe it or not, my man. Wow, four years. So I, I gotta, so I'm gonna embarrass you a little bit right now. So you're <laughs> like the charm. You're like the charm for Memphis. You get to Memphis, their football coach gets the Florida State job. You get Penny Hardaway coaching the Memphis basketball team. You get John ja Morant. If you're there another four years, I'm convinced, Evan, you will raise Elvis from the dead. But, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, no, it was just it, it, an interesting trajectory for you. Uh, it must have been interesting to make that decision to leave kind of the panacea of Southern California to head out to Tennessee. Well, it's funny because, like, you mentioned that. So, like, when I got here, there was a lot of um, uproar about Penny Hardaway. It's like, is Penny Hardaway going to coach this team? Is Penny Hardaway going to coach this team? Sure enough, Penny gets hired, what, in April? So three months after I get here, Penny's the coach. Um, the draft lottery that year, they get Jaron Jackson, which was a good pick, but we weren't sure kind of what that would turn into. And then <clears throat> in the span of like, what, let's say, January 2019 to right up to the pandemic in March 2020, you get the Tigers going on a run to the Cotton Bowl, the football team. John Morant gets drafted. Penny Hardaway gets James Wiseman, who's the number one player in the country. And all the mess that came with that with the NCAA. And then, oh, by the way, the Grizzlies happen to become a playoff a playoff contending team. And John Morant becomes this rookie of the year sensation. It's really kind of been a funny ride in a way where, like, my first two years here went a lot better as far as covering things than you could have imagined. Yeah, that that West Torrance Torrance football game is kind of very low down on the priorities now. No, no disrespect to the old Pioneer League; they do a great job over there. <laughs> um, so, so hey, I, I I honestly wanted to talk to you way before this, but they're holding off on the Stranger Things season four. So once that comes on, I got to let you know right now you're you're on the hook for another uh, Stranger Things podcast. But um, so I mentioned you're a son of Los Angeles, so I, I thought of you. Uh, for the new HBO series Winning Time that chronicles the rise of the Showtime Lakers. And it's interesting, right? Because you're kind of a Kobe generation Laker fan. Um, and it's a little bit before your time. But honestly, it's a little bit before my time as well. I remember the Showtime Lakers, but I don't remember kind of their ascension, how they were built. I mean, I knew Magic and Kareem, obviously. And I didn't really get into the NBA till like the mid-80s when it was the Celtics and the Lakers playing for the championship, I think three years in a row. I think it was like 84, 85, 86, 87. or 84, 85, 87. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I really, you know, you kind of grew up in it being a Laker fan. Before we get to winning time, can you talk a little bit about your beloved Lakers? What's going on over there? And I'll be honest with you, when they had the problems earlier in the year, I was one of the guys who said, you know what? It's the Lakers, it's LeBron. Maybe they'll win 45 or 48 games this year, but they'll be okay once April rolls around. Well, Evan, we're in April, and nothing has turned around. I know you've been focusing on other things out there in Memphis, but what do you make of this Lakers situation? 
I think it reminds me of just why you can't depend on older players to kind of lead you all the way when it's mostly older players and pieces that just try to fit that don't fit. I mean, when I saw the team, I had two thoughts. One, it would be interesting to watch. And two, it could go really badly. Um, I actually looked at a prediction that I made before the season, just doodling around. I wasn't sure how serious I was with it, but I actually predicted like Lakers over Bucks, actually. And I kind of was ashamed. I was like, why did I predict that? Because I just didn't I didn't feel like they were going to win, but I felt like somebody had to come out of the West and I didn't really know who it would be. So I picked somebody, but I was like, this could end badly. I just had a bad feeling because we saw the twenty the two thousand four Lakers where they had Shaq and Kobe, but they added Malone and Gary Carl Malone and Gary Payton, and that team was just a mess because Shaq and Kobe were going through their the peak of their feud. Kobe was obviously dealing with the um the the, the trial surrounding his his situation in Colorado. Uh, Gary Payton didn't really fit in. Carl Malone was kind of trying to figure out how to make this work. And that team just kind of like blew apart spectacularly in the NBA finals. This team is more just like, I don't, they just weren't fun. Like when I would watch games, it's like, there's nothing fun here. Like, you know what I mean? Like usually you watch a team, you try to like enjoy something out of it. There was no fun. So I think that was maybe my biggest takeaway is that there was just nothing fun about this team. And it made it hard to watch. And, of course, everyone is going to get their jokes off because, you know, hey, when the Lakers lose, everyone wants to pile on because it's great. But I think for me, you look at this team and you're just like, it doesn't just look bad right now. It looks bad for the next few years. And that's kind of what makes would make me concerned if I was still in L.A. rooting for this team. You know, next question, then I'm, I, I think I have an answer, but I'll ask you because you're a little bit closer to it. having covered the NBA um, organizational issue or is this a Frank Vogel issue? organization because you can change coaches all you want but that roster John Wooden himself couldn't have coached that team to a 50 win season because you can't you you don't you have a team that really had no perimeter defense had no shooting had nobody that made you scared of them outside of LeBron James what coach could make magic with that like nobody could and it's just a matter of like the organization has to decide are you going to try to do what's best and splashy and try to like say, Hey, we're going to try to bring in big names. We're going to try to get free agents. Or are you going to try to rebuild slower and say, look, we don't have draft picks. We got to be a little bit smarter who we get in free agency. We got to be smarter on players who fit certain needs. Um, But the problem is Russell Westbrook's contract next year. If he opts in, it's over $40 million. LeBron's going to be worth a lot of money next year. So you don't have a lot of cap space. So, Whoever is going to be in the organization has to look at themselves and say, what do we need to do differently to position ourselves? Maybe not for next year, but try to strategize a three to four year plan, because as they've showed the last 10 years, they have not done a good job planning for what if this gets bad. Like when Kobe got old, they never had a contingency plan to carry on and transfer Kobe to some young star, kind of the way the 80s Lakers transferred from Kareem to Magic. They didn't have a, a they didn't have a life after Kobe plan. This group doesn't have a life after LeBron plan. The plan was supposed to be Anthony Davis, but doesn't like doesn't look like Anthony Davis can be that go to young number one option. So I don't know. It's it's organization. It's unfortunate that Frank Vogel might be the sacrificial lamb, but they have to look at a few shepherds in that organization. If you feel me, I uh, absolutely. Well, it, it, it just it. Brings us to the like in terms of the NBA, what what it's happened now is 
yeah, you were saying is you need a three to five year vision um, with with anything you do. So you get the first round pick and you draft a LeBron James. You need a three to five year vision from an organizational standpoint. And I think that at a certain point, the Lakers were all in with this season. They figured, you know, let's bring in Westbrook in. Let's bring in, you know, Carmelo. We'll have one last run. Hopefully AD stays healthy and we'll have that run. And then after the championship run, then we'll figure it all out. And it just, it just didn't didn't work out for them. And, and I, I'm intrigued at some of the names I've been hearing about coaching. And I agree with you. I think it, this is a top-down, you know, it all starts at the top. It's a top-down situation. Um, but just the the – the, the quick the quick descent is what surprised me like this isn't like rome collapsing over you know you know a couple hundred years this was like you were at the pinnacle and then you had a little bit of a misstep and then you're you're crumbling within it was a three-year win two two-year window basically yeah i mean you have to always think about just what is going to be your strategy because i think teams are so short-sighted on doing whatever it takes to win that they lose the ability to actually manage a team with a long-term plan. Like you look at, look at the Grizzlies, right? They obviously have championship dreams, but when they drafted Jaron Jackson and John Morant in the lottery, it was part of a long-term plan to say, hey, we know that we're not going to be good right away. Let's try to build and build and build. And then by the time the two of them are on their second contracts, we have a team that can contend and be good for a while. And that's what you want to have. Now, the problem is sustaining that because obviously – with the salary cap situation and, and and lottery picks or first round picks getting big contracts, it then becomes a question of how do you retain everybody? How do you build a team that's going to stay together and grow? And it's really hard to do that. Um, and that's where teams have to get creative and figure out, look, who can we fit? Who can we get on the cheap to support our higher paid stars? Um, and I think that's where a lot of GMs are struggling with right now. So, but the Lakers too, I think, you know, the short-sightedness of let's go all in to get a ring. I understand that. And any team would trade that plan and say it's it's an unquestioned success because you got a ring. Like, look at the Raptors. Never in my life did I think Toronto would ever have a team that would be a championship team. But they will take that ring over whatever struggles they have over the next 15, 20 years, if that's the case. They'll take that ring and hang it forever. Um, the, the Lakers – their thing has always been kind of like the Celtics. They have been the measure of consistency in the league, kind of like the Spurs too. I mean, they don't have that right now. And they have to figure out, look, how do we rebuild and get back to where we want to be? Because now you're just trading in on your legacy instead of trading in on being an organization that matters for being competent and shrewd, if you will. Uh, I mean, well said. I, I, I just, you know, like I grew up, I mean, I grew up a New Jersey Nets fan. And now they're the Brooklyn Nets. But I, I remember when they made the Harden deal, I looked at it and I said, okay, now you're looking, instead of, so you're getting rid of, you know, you're getting rid of Jared Allen, you're getting rid of Kyrus Levert, who are two of my favorite guys in terms of that context, playing with, you know, Kyrie Irving and, and Kevin Durant. So now you're squeezing it. You're going from a five-year window to a three-year window. So if you don't win within three years, then, you know, you know, all bets are off. And obviously the Harden experiment didn't work out and it's all blown up. And, you know, and I think Sean Marks is a pretty good basketball executive. And I think he couldn't even foretell of what was going to happen with this whole Harden situation. And he kind of gutted kind of his depth to bring in Harden. And now we are where we're at with, with that franchise as well. But but I digress, Evan, because what I wanted to bring in bring you in for was to talk to you about Winning Time, the new HBO series about the rise of the uh, the Showtime Lakers and and I, I I don't know I'll let you kind of jump in here but like I've just been fascinated 
because I'm a little older than you and I remember the Showtime Lakers, but I did not really under I did not really know a lot about the rise of Jerry Buss and how he came to get the team and how that team was all put together. So we're five I'm five episodes in, Evan, and I am just fascinated at the content that has come out. I don't know what, what your feeling is. Yeah, I'm in the same way. Like I was excited about this because I bought Perlman's book back uh, when it came out. I was really excited about it. I learned a great deal from his book. I thought it would be like, well, what more can we learn about this team that's been so discussed? But um, if not for the book, I never would have known about Jack McKinney. I never would have known about Spencer Haywood being on that uh, that first title team. I never would have known about um, some of the other things um, that you know were uncovered as far as like some of the drafting that happened near the end that wasn't so good. Um, I thought it was a really good book. The show I was really excited about because I had just seen Don't Look Up, which was directed by Adam McKay. So I kind of had a sense of the style and the show and the feel of it based off of that. Um, and I have been – I was very skeptical after the first episode, um, especially with Jerry West. I, I thought they, they, they did Jerry West so wrong in that first episode. But I'm with you. I'm on episode five. I am now a lot more engaged – with how this show has become, because now you're seeing more of the character development. You're seeing more of the personality that is kind of like, okay, I can look past some of the over the topness and see some of the things here where I'm like, yeah, that's really interesting. Like obviously how did Kareem, you know, feel about magic? How did some of the team react to magic? Um, I think there are some elements of the show that I don't still don't like, but it's really entertaining and captivating. And I think hopefully it'll inspire people to read uh, Perlman's book, which is obviously for someone like Jeff Perlman, who's one of my favorite uh, journalists right now, writers, um, his reporting is excellent. He gets into the details. He interviewed so many people. Um, there are people he didn't get, but there are people he did interview that made the story so rich and so great. So I think um, I definitely suggest reading his book. Yeah, I, the one thing – so you mentioned the Jerry West ang- angle, and it's funny. I kind of got that. I knew, you know, and, and there will t- there are a couple of different areas too where they kind of have to cut some corners just because they're condensing a big time period. But with Jerry West, his portrayal I think was more to convey to us the hardship of his upbringing. And and if you've read his book, and you know, I, had, I had a chance to to be be in an event with Jerry West a couple of years ago, just talking about that tough upbringing he had, the relationship with his father, and I think that's kind of what they were pouring into that. And then you know, this is all to me. It's about the actor's choice. An actor made the choice to play this role to kind of portray it in that manner. Um, so I you know I know a lot of people were bothered by it. They felt it was inaccurate. But I think in terms of the story, it got us from point A to point B, the way they they wanted to. Here's a guy who puts a lot of pressure on himself. It has to do with his upbringing. He's a bit of a workaholic. He's a bit of a type A stress case. And really, their end game was he's going to resign the coaching job. So we need to make it believable that this guy who is a dyed-in-the-wool Laker, who is a true Laker, his heart bleeds purple and gold, we need to convince a non-basketball audience that this guy would quit his dream job right before the greatest player in the you know, some people would argue the greatest player in the franchise history joins the team. That's that's the way I looked at it. But um, I agree with you. It's kind of having met Jerry West and having seen him. And, you know, it's 40 years apart, obviously, from the time I met him to the time this you know story is being portrayed. I'm guessing that there's a little poetic license taken with his portrayal. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. They did show if you look at it from knowing Jerry West, you can see how. You know, obviously the famous stories of how tight he was watching games, like how hard it was for him to watch 
games yeah. because he got so emotional and he cared so much about winning and he obsessed about how many times he lost to the Celtics. Um, I think that is good to convey. Um, and I think it's important. You know, that's the part about Jerry West that I think is worth exploring too. And I thought in the second episode, they did a better job of that. Um, but I still feel like the part of it where it was like, you know, it took them a while to explain how in the first episode, I was mad that they didn't explain that he lost to the Celtics but he beat them in 1972, which they showed in the second episode. But I wish they would have showed that. That way they would have made some sense about, hey, he's not just this bitter guy who got the finals MVP for losing. He was, he did finally get over on the Celtics. Um, I would have liked that in the first episode. But it is something where I'm like, okay, Jerry West is somewhat of a, for me, I read a biography on Jerry West some years ago, and I really gained an appreciation for him as a player more. As a as a basketball player, what he could do so well, um, and I really believe that I'm I believe in protecting the legacy of those who paved the way in the NBA. And Jerry and Elgin Baylor are two people that I really really care about in that regard. Um, and so for me, it just feels like all right. I would love to see like the good qualities of Jerry West show up. This this smart basketball mind, this guy who cares, this guy who's is like walked all over by Jerry Buss in ways that make him look you know too wound up to, to, you know, to match him as an equal, you know? Um, but that's maybe like my main quibble. But overall though, I think um, Magic was well-casted. I think Kareem was well-casted. Um, I think uh, Pat Riley, we're going to see how Adrian Brody ends up turning out, but I think that's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know, Gil. I mean, it, what what did you think about um, the casting? Cause I, I've read a lot of interviews with the, uh, Solomon Hughes, the actor and uh, professor who is playing Kareem. What did you think about some of the, the casting? Well, so so I have a little insight in this, Evan. So my friend auditioned to play a role. I, I had a close old roommate of mine as an actor, been bouncing around about 20 years, been pretty successful. He was he came. He was one of the guys who was up for Tar- Jerry Tarkanian. And I hopefully going to get him in trouble because he actually sent me his video, the video of his audition, which I think he, I don't think he's supposed to do. But and he's not a sports fan. That's that's the, the quick thing. So he's asking me all these questions. And I told him because he showed me the audition. I said, you got the eyes. You got to have the voice, you know, and then they cast, you know, Rory Cochran, who's a very accomplished actor who I've been a fan of, you know, a number of his movies. But he did everything but the voice. Like he doesn't do the, the gravelly kind of Tarkanian voice, you know. Um, but I, I honestly have been pleasantly surprised at the casting. And for me. It's it's not about I it's I'm one of those guys that if a famous person plays a famous person, it almost takes me out of the it almost takes me out of the movie. You know, I'd rather have an unknown play it. And I'll tell you, the the one the the one big thing for me was I'm so impressed and I and it shouldn't be a surprise. Right. Because he's a fantastic actor. Mm-hmm. I'm so impressed at how John C. Riley has inhabited uh, Jerry Buss because yes. I know. I know the portrayal probably isn't anything like Bus really was, but I buy it in the context of this story, if that makes any sense. Yes, I agree. I, I agree. I, I think his um, – oh, gosh, I just drew a blank, Gil. I'm sorry. Who You just mentioned uh, – who did you mention right now? You mentioned John, – uh, John C. Riley is Jerry Buss. Jerry yeah, Buss, John yeah. C. Riley. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Jerry Buss. Oh, my gosh. John C. Riley is having a ball with this. You could tell. He is enjoying <laughs> the heck out of this role. He's re- He's relishing what he can do with it. He's just totally immersed in that character and that vibe. And I think that's why he's such a great actor because he just you feel why Jerry Buss was so important to this team. And I think yeah. the, the, clearly the show 
has decided it's going to focus on Jerry Buss and Magic Johnson. That's going to be like the two main orbits. Right. Everything kind of like goes around. Um, and I think it's really interesting because I think Jerry Buss, who, as you know, you know, being in L.A., I know growing up, Jerry Buss is as beloved as somebody could be as an owner, right? Like usually most yeah. owners nowadays, you really don't see them out in front as much unless they're Jerry Jones, right? right most right. owners are kind of, you know, content to be in the background for the most part. But Jerry Buss was front and center. He loved the Lakers. He loved being, you know, part of Showtime. But he also was smart enough to say, look, I'm going to let the smart people do their job. I'm going to focus on creating this atmosphere to let it be a place where people want to come to. Create an atmosphere. Yeah. What were you going to say? Go ahead. No, no, because you read the book. So so I, I'm interested to get your insight. Was he truly as flamboyant as they portray him? Because, you know, yeah, like, and remember something, this is in the 80s. You don't have the 24-hour cycle of news, right? So I'd be watching the Lakers on a Saturday or a Sunday, and they'd cut to a shot of Jerry Buss sitting next to a beautiful woman, and they'd say, this is the, uh, this is the owner of the Lakers, and then they'd move on. You know, now I wasn't in L.A. at the time, so I'm wondering if he was was he that flamboyant out in the public. And I knew about the Forum Club and all that stuff, but that was behind closed doors. Right. Only the most yeah. exclusive folks got the insight into what was going on at the club, the, the Forum Club. And I have you know friends and stuff whose parents were involved in that stuff who kind of told me these stories. But um, that that was one thing in the book. Was he was Jerry was Jerry Buss as flamboyant as 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 Riley's portraying him in this series? I think for my impression, from what I remember, yes. Like, he was very yeah. much – he wanted that glitz and glamour. He wanted that whole, um, you know, make this a place where people can, like, enjoy themselves as part of L.A. I think that definitely was part of his vision. And it's funny. His his story actually is really, really intriguing. I believe Jerry Buss grew up, you know, kind of poor, had to struggle to kind of make ends meet with his family. He actually – he's – we call him Dr. Buston. I believe he has a doctorate, a Ph.D. or doctorate in – um chemistry i think or something like yes. yeah, that, yeah 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 that part when he dropped it in the in the in the dial in the, in the show i thought was cool because yes he is a doctor he is an intelligent man but he also loved the flamboyance of things um so i think that they captured that really well like i definitely they they, they clearly wanted to make him like a hugh hefner type i guess right, yeah, yeah obviously right now if you've been keeping up with some of the stuff in the news you don't want to create a hugh hefner archetype in 2022 but um, clearly Jerry Buss kind of wanted to have this be a place that was more than just a basketball game. And I think that the documentary is showing how much he and his team, and I do have to give credit to them showing uh, Claire Rothman, because I have not really known much about her. I think they give her a lot of time to show how important she is in this. Um, I will say that the Jeannie Buss angle is kind of funny. It's kind of cool. To kind of show mm -hmm. how much she is part of this, and I think as as you know, if you know the Lakers, Jeannie Buss has always been someone who's beloved for just her care and love of this franchise. So I do kind of like how they threw her, you know, find a way to put her in there, even though I think anachronistically she didn't start working with the team until '81. But still, right. I like I like that anachronism because it's like okay, you see how much the Buss family is still part of this, you know. Well, and then yeah, and you brought it up earlier, the relationship between Magic and Jerry Buss. And then you inject Jeannie into that. It was a great scene in the series where Magic is the rookie, just been drafted. He shows up at Dr. Buss's house, and there's Jeannie, and he doesn't know that Jeannie's Jerry Buss's daughter. So he's okay. trying to finesse the finesse the scene and whatnot, and then he learns, oh, this is this is this is his daughter, and then then and then Jerry's got to leave to go to Vegas for something, and so he ends up hanging out with Jeannie, and Jeannie's got to entertain him a little, for a little bit. 
Okay, so that scene I did not like it's the setup because okay. obviously but here's why. We know how close Magic and Genie are. They're very, very close, brother, sister. They've always talked about this. I didn't like how they have Magic kind of like looking her up and down. I'm like, come on, man. Like it, one, it, yes, we know Magic was out here, you know, enjoying his the pleasures of life, if you will. But to kind of have him like look checking out Genie Bus, I'm like, really? Like I couldn't, I couldn't get that. That was a little bit too much for me. I was like, Mm-mm. knowing how close they are and kind of that brother sister relationship, I was like, mm. they could have done a little bit without. They could have made it more platonic, not like, oh, I'm sorry that you are the daughter of the owner. No, no, I didn't like that scene. <laughs> I, I do like so so. I mean, but this this and this is something that you know, I, I growing up reading about like the the old the old Yankees the 70s Yankees right Peter Goldenbach and Phil Pepe writing these books about that when Reggie Jackson and George Steinbrenner were buddies when he came to the Yankees that was a big point of contention for a lot of the other you know the other players because it was a different era in sports at the time and I think the the, the kind of an archetype of that is that Jerry Buss Magic Johnson relationship which held until Dr. Buss passed away obviously um and that I think was groundbreaking and I think they're a little bit casual with it Evan in the series maybe as we get further into it it'll be more of a more of a thing and there've been a couple of flashpoints with it but the idea that you know here's Magic a guy from East Lansing who comes to LA and then you know Jerry Buss in a sense is kind of his uh, surrogate uh, godfather yeah, I, I'm really curious kind of how that plays out because I like the scene in the locker room where the, the players were kind of like resentful of that because yeah. the book did, the book did mention that the book did mention how okay. the, the players were like yeah you know you're a little too close to management that's not common like that's not how the way things are because players feel like if you're too close to management you're going to be trying to sabotage stuff that happens in the locker room um, so I thought that's really interesting um, I do I I, I I like seeing their relationship because I think. It is something that, you know, we know that the reason that that Magic got into business was because Jerry Buss helped introduce him to people and put that bug in his ear when he was younger. Um, we know that that's kind of what happened. So I, I am fascinated by it, but I do want to see how they show it within the team dynamic because clearly Magic is one of the guys, but he also knows how to bring people together from different walks of life that are gravitating towards him, which he still obviously has, you know, the ability to do today. So um, it is interesting to see that relationship. You mentioned Claire Rothman, and she's a very important character. Uh, and, and Gabby Hoffman does a great job portraying her over the first five episodes that I've watched. But they do leave a couple. You mentioned that Jeannie didn't really become involved with the business operation until a couple of years later. That's a little bit of poetic license. A guy, you know, when I started doing sports media in Orange County like 25 years ago now, there was a guy down there doing a lot of stuff named Roy Engelbrecht who was one of the marketing guys for the Lakers, who's kind of completely cut out of this story. And I know sometimes you got to make choices in terms of when you present a story like this and over the course of 10 episodes. So he's a guy who had was, was credited with working with Dr. Buzz to kind of bring the Showtime element to the forum uh, in the early 80s. But one the the episode I wanted to talk to you about, I want, we'll, we'll run through a few flashpoints. How about Michael Chiklis's Red Orbach and the Jerry Buss Red Orbach meeting? Give me Give me your thoughts on that, Evan. I thought that was fun. Uh, Michael Chiklis, I love that dude. So I thought that was kind of fun. He played Red Auerbach so well. And I got to shout out my guy, Jason Jones at The Athletic, who talked to, to, talk to him. So uh-huh. he did a good story about him there. I thought that was a great, great um, casting. I thought that was great. I liked their meeting in a way where it's kind of like very adversarial. Um, and I liked the fact that Auerbach didn't meet with him, which I thought was cool. Because it was kind of like, okay, you know, this respect, you know, look. 
he wants to learn. Bus wants to learn from him. Bus wants to do this. And Auerbach's like, look, I'm all about winning. This is what it's about. And I like the scene in, I think it was what, uh, episode two, I guess, where they're at the forum. Red shows up. They talk. And basically, Jerry Bus is like, I'm willing to go toe to toe with you. And I thought that was great because you get the sense of, hey, Red Auerbach, this, this, this important figure in the history of the NBA, and Jerry Buss, the upstart. And they're meeting both not as this kind of like childish, I'm going to want to be one of you. It's more like a competitive sense of yeah. Jerry Buss. Old, wants- old money, old money, meet new money. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I liked it. It was it was done very very well. So I love I love that casting. Um, and then you asked about uh, what was the other thing you asked about? Um, well, no, no, I I, I, I wanted to ask you is the is the Orbach bus relationship in the book or is that something they just they bought in for the movie? I don't remember. Um, it might have been from the movie. I'm not sure. Um, or series. I'm not sure. I, I'd like to know. I. I I bought the copy. I don't know where my copy is at home. I asked my mom to send it to me, but I don't know if she's found it. But um, I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. Um, let's jump to episode three. And this is when they're trying to figure out who this head coach is going to be. And they go to Tarkanian. But the funniest thing to me in that episode, Evan, is the rivalry between Norm Nixon and Magic Johnson, which culminates, and he's invited to the screening of a movie called The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, where Norm <laughs> Nixon is in, with Doc, and then he ends up getting a scene cut, which apparently is a true story, that he was in the movie, but most of his scenes get cut. Um, and so that rivalry, I think Norm Nixon is basically the conduit into which we learn about Magic's rivalry within the Lakers' locker room. Yeah, I think that was interesting, because um, obviously – that relationship turned sour at the end of their their partnership. I I do know remember reading that, but um you know part of that was like I, I didn't love the whole scene at the at the Sterling compound. I thought that was a little bit staged and whatever. Typical like new guy old guy tension. Right. But I did like the fact that they did kind of show like hey Matt is trying to come in and try to be this you know this new guy and Norm Nixon's worried about like hey I got to protect my job. Um I do like that. I think it's really interesting. Um, and I think that's been a really fun dynamic. It's it's a fun dynamic to see. And I loved how at the practices they showed how they basically went at each other. And then when McKinney pairs them together, they find a way to make it work. I think that was some of the best basketball scenes we had seen so far. Um, but it is interesting. It's a cool dynamic. And shout out to the actor playing Norm Nixon, his son. Um, I can't right. remember. Is it Devon Nixon? I'm trying to remember. Devon. Yeah, I think it is Devon. Devon Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's. He's got, I mean, I'd love to know about like how in the world he, I mean, I, I think I read a clip or something, but like, I'd like to know kind of how he feels about just, you know, playing his, you know, his dad. That's got to be really cool. Yeah. And it was a different, it's a different vibe, you know, in the NBA at the time. And, you know, I, I had, a, I had the opportunity when I was at North CSUN to work with Reggie Theus and, and coach Theus had some great stories about that era of the NBA. I think Reggie was drafted in 78 or 79. Mm-hmm. So that kind of early era, maybe a year or two before magic. So I always loved hearing those stories about, you know, he, he didn't talk about Norm specifically, but there were other guys that he had relationships with that were kind of like Norm Nixon and kind of then talked about his own relationship later with Kenny Smith and stuff like that, which I always found interesting. But to me, like, I love that they incorporated the fish that saved Pittsburgh in there. And I'm not a huge fan of that movie. My seventies basketball movie has always been fast break with you know, ah. Bernard King, Harold Sylvester, Gabe Kaplan, you know, you got Mr. Cotter pl- coaching basketball and smoking weed and, and you know, whatever <laughs> to a 12 year old, that's the greatest thing in the world. But um, I always get, I always get disappointed when, you know, these websites now, and, and they, when they talk about, I mean, the dead spin just did their, their hoopers, their fantasy hooper, fictional hoopers bracket. And there's not a, 
fast break person mentions. So that got me a little bit upset. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, ep- that was episode three. Let's episode four. So you brought it up a couple times, and this to me, as kind of like a basketball geek, is fascinating. The Jack McKinney hiring for, to the Lakers, the Jack McKinney, Paul Westhead, who both come off the Jack Ramsey tree out of St. Joe's. They won the NBA championship, obviously, with the Blazers, with, with Bill Walton. And this, the training camp episode, to me, was just fascinating because you learned about how this all is intertwined. And we know it a little bit now, kind of with the, the you know, the current trees, you know, you can talk about your alma mater, the USD coaching tree, all these USD guys who are in the NBA now. But St. Joe's to the Lakers seems like a long jump. But Jack McKinney got the job, and it turned out he was kind of the architect of what we now know as the system or what was the Showtime fast break game. Yeah, I think that was really, really great. And again, shouts to Jeff Perlman for bringing it out so well in his book to show it. Because I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of I don't I didn't know that you show I associate Showtime with Pat Riley, and obviously Paul West said we know became the guru of go at LMU. But like Jack McKinney was kind of the guy who got this whole thing started and unlocked the potential of what this could be. I think those scenes are so fascinating to see how this is unfolding and how Jack McKinney is trying to change this system and clashing with everybody. I found that to be, to me, great television, great tension, great acting. Um, and I, I, I really love it. And of course, episode five, um, I don't think we're spoiling it at this point right now when you see what happened to Jack McKinney. Right, uh, right, it, right. It's, it's really unfortunate. And the book does a great job exploring that, too. But, I mean, he deserves a lot of credit for being kind of like the the originator of what the Lakers system was. Now, I know I think John Wooden's UCLA teams were kind of that up-tempo, fast-break style. Like, John Wooden wanted to play fast. He wanted to keep things in motion. But for Jack McKinney to bring that to the Lakers, it kind of brought that back up where it's like, okay, this is where it happened. So I thought that was fascinating, too. Yeah, because because that's the whole thing is you and you and I like people of, uh, you know, the later generations, we always um, we associate Showtime with Pat Riley. But Pat Riley had mentors and he learned from Paul Westhead and, and Jack McKinney and, and, and Chick. Well, that's another funny thing in episode five. But, yeah, it, it's 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 a really interesting breakdown. Yeah. I, and then now, you know, the more you talk about it, the more I want to go jump and read the book now, because I want to learn more about the inside you know, scoop of here's this guy who's an assistant at Portland. What I loved about episode four, because we went into the Jerry West stuff earlier, Evan, is this is the redemption for Jerry West, right? Because Jerry West doesn't want to coach the Lakers. And really the way they, they I don't know how it does in the book, but in the in the TV version, it seems that uh, Dr. Buss comes on board when Jerry West endorses the McKinney system. Yeah. And I think that, like you said, that is a great redemption for Jerry Buss where it's like, I mean, Jerry West where, you know, he just really, that's where the basketball side of him comes out where this, this intelligent basketball mind comes out and you see, well, Hey, he sees something in, in this. And it's like, Hey, it might work. It's cool. And you really see like, okay, that's the Jerry West. I want to see, give him some credit for kind of being a, a basketball mind who kind of had a role in this, not just as a sort of tension, but as a, a, a someone who had his hands in this in some fashion. So, yeah, I, I like that. Um, the Tark stuff, man, like I have to go back and reread that story about what happened to his guy because I was like, yeah, that story is bizarre. And that actually is, I guess, like, you know, one of the more infamous crimes in the San Fernando Valley from what I read. I did not yes. know that. Did you know Unsolved, that story? Yeah. I did. I I knew the the lore. I didn't know the actual story and how like there there are 
there's a couple of I was, there was an article that came out about 10 years ago in the in the LA Daily News, one of your old papers, where like the detectives, I think it was 20 years after that crime, the detectives who were in on that crime, I think one of them is retired, one of them is still on the force. They're still going after Lee's to kind of figure out what all happened with that. Dang. Wow. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a big it's a it's a big mystery story. And here's the funny thing is, I remember I told you my friend was auditioned to play Jerry Tarkanian. He sent me the script, and that scene is in the script when Tark mm. finds out that his friend has gotten murdered. You know, and I had to go look it up because I didn't remember. I'm like, wow, is this? You know, I was wondering, is this one of those things they add in to make it more you know colorful, or is this really happened? And sure enough, it really happened, which is which was which was which was wild. But the idea of Tarkanian coming to the Lakers too was a whole other was a whole whole other level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine if Jerry Tarkanian did end up taking that job with the Lakers. I mean, that's a whole like ripple effect of like what happens in college basketball, what happens to UNLV's reputation. Um, what happens with the Lakers? Like, do they still find a way to win with Tarkanian coaching them? I mean, that's a great what if that had so many like ripple effects on so many things to where if Tark if Tark takes that job, who knows if we recognize UNLV basketball as like a cultural powerhouse? You right. Know? Like, what if what if what if Tark leaves and then Mike Krzyzewski gets the UNLV job instead of oh. the Duke? You know, there are all whoa. these there are all these questions. Whoa, yeah. Like I said, that's. That's one of those like, wow, they were so close to getting it and then it didn't happen. You were like, maybe it all worked out in some way where he was supposed to be at UNLV. But man, that's a what if. <laughs> that's an absolute what if. So let's jump to episode five, which was the most recent one that aired. And obviously, spoiler alerts, because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in it. So I want to give props to Adam McKay and to HBO. You have the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar conversion to Islam episode on the first weekend of Ramadan in 2022. So shout out for that. But um, you bought up Spencer Hayward, Hayward, the Spencer Hayward character, Wood Harris, who's one of my all time favorite guys. Great obviously actor. Going back to the wire. Yeah. Great actor. Uh, people remember from remember the Titans, but he was also in the wire. Um, that storyline. Now I was really, you talked about Jerry West. I was a little confused about how the Kareem was portrayed in the first four episodes. They didn't give him much to do. And when they did give much to do is kind of, you know, kind of off in the corner. And episode five, we really get to dive into Kareem, who I don't know what you feel, Evan, to me, has always been just a fascinating character in the scope of just basketball and just American culture in general over the last 50 years. Absolutely. Like Kareem to me is I, I could talk about we could do a whole podcast about Kareem for me because yeah. I yeah. love and admire him as a thinker, as a basketball player as somebody who is one of our finest examples of sports, academia, and uh, you know activism in this country, as somebody who I hold in very, very high regard, when he speaks, I want to just ask more questions. I want to shut up and ask questions. Um, you're right. I did. I was hoping they would show more of him because I, I, you know, the, I read a lot of stuff about the guy who's playing him. And I thought, oh, they were going to show more about Kareem, and they kind of relegated him to the sideline. But episode five did a great job of not just Kareem, but some of the little small touches around that character. So I loved how yeah. obviously Kareem is a jazz man. Kareem loves jazz. I loved how they, they put in Gil Scott Heron's Pieces of a Man, which is a great album, by the way. But I loved how they weave that into some of the scenes about how he's trying to process himself and understand himself and dealing with what he went through growing up. Um, I, I thought that scene was very well done, very well scored. Um, you see how this man is someone who is, you know, 
clearly in his own world, clearly has his way of thinking, but it's time to really kind of understand who he is. And I think it's important because one of the reasons he was so standoffish is because a lot of the media was white and they didn't understand this guy with a Muslim name who wasn't as social as Ali, but, you know, clearly wanted to do things his way. And so I thought this helps remind people why Kareem matters. So, and you brought up a great point, which I totally missed. I mean, he kind of came to prominence a little bit after Ali came to prominence. And so you had Ali on the one hand and you had Kareem on the other. And so I think a lot of people said, okay, here's a big time athlete converts to Islam. They, 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 they put him in the Ali category and he's not, I mean, and nobody's Muhammad Ali, obviously, but he's not Ali. He's a different, a different, a different cat. You brought up his name is Dr. Solomon Hughes, the actor that played mm-hmm. him, also played a little mm-hmm. bit of college basketball. And I read a story about him, and he's a fascinating story. Was a lecturer at Stanford, was a lecturer at Duke at, at some point. Yeah. So that's a, a, brilliant, a brilliant guy who's a tall guy who played college basketball who happened to look like Kareem, and now here he is uh, playing Kareem in this series. That That's fascinating in, in and of itself. Um, uh, the, yeah, the, the jazz stuff is amazing because obviously he is a, a you know truly a curator of 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 great music and and the, so here's my here's my Kareem file for you Evan and this is what got me and I, I watched HBO did some years ago did a documentary called Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Minority of One okay mm. so 1968 he wins the national championship with UCLA and then doesn't go to the Olympics boycotts the Olympics 1969 wins the national championship again third in a row at UCLA uh so he's the first round pick in the NBA draft and then he's rookie of the year. And then I think his second year, he wins the, the, the championship third year in the NBA wins the MVP. And then before his fourth year in the NBA, Evan, he's off shooting a movie with Bruce Lee. Like that's give me, give me that window against anybody ever in the history of sports. I, I can't think of it. Like he literally like was the epitome of cool and swagger right. And greatness literally before he reaches his so-called athletic prime. Like you said, before his fourth season, he's won MVP. He's got a ring. He's one of the greatest college players of all – the greatest college player of all time. And, oh, by the way, he's shooting this movie with Bruce Lee, which is going to make him a bigger star in the late 70s because obviously the story is um, Game, of, Game of Death gets shot in 1972. Bruce Lee gets pulled away to go shoot Enter the Dragon. Bruce Lee dies in 1973. Game of Death comes out in 78, and that becomes a bigger cultural moment for Kareem. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to, like, diverge into Bruce Lee. Another person. No, no, no. No, it's great. No, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Another another person I deeply admire. So, um, but yeah, like you said, Kareem had this life that's just so, so fascinating, so cool. So like No Instagram, you know, no, okay, okay. this guy was just all over it. Well, here's what I liked. And, and again, you can maybe give some insight from the book. I love the scene where he kind of pulls magic aside and talks about his kind of, you know, his, he said, Hey, I get it. You're the number one pick overall, but let me, let me tell you something. You won one NCAA championship. I won three and I would have won four. I like, you know, cause Kareem is always kind of portrayed as kind of this humble, intelligent, well-spoken guy. I like cocky Kareem. I love, I love that scene, Evan. I don't, I don't know how you <laughs> felt about it, or I don't know how he probably <laughs> deal with it in the book at all. No, I don't remember if that was actually a scene or if that was just like, you know, ad lib for, for this, for the TV. But yeah. I thought that was kind of cool because, again, Kareem is somebody who was, you know, very protective, very much like, you know, I'm sure he had a sense of ego and pride, you know. But I think Kareem also knows that, hey, he cares about winning just as much as Magic did, you know. 
He won everywhere he went. He cares about that. He cares about doing things a certain way. So I like their little clash because to me, it was like somebody needed to say something to Kareem to get him on board. He also needed to kind of check magic in a way. And I liked it. And now I hope to kind of see how they, you know, bridge that gap a little bit. Because you, I love how, again, magic, you know, they, and again, my, my issue with how they portrayed magic is they show him a little bit too cocky for my liking. But yeah. I do like how he always called him Cap. Like, that's how we all know him in L.A. It's like, on the Lakers, he was Cap. So I love how magic at least deferred as much as he wanted to be the man. Um, but I like seeing their relationship, but I, I kind of want to see how that's going to emerge throughout this uh, this uh, series, if you will. All right, we're coming up on the end, so I'm, I'm going to do a little free associate. I'll throw something out at you. You can give me your thoughts on it because there's a bunch of stuff I still want to get to. We were joking. When I sent you the rundown, you laughed. You're like, are we going to be able to get to all this? And I told you, I said, Evan, if we get to 30% <laughs> of it, I'll be really happy. Because um, you know, you're used to writing long form, so you can get everything in. Um, Laker Girls. So we talked about Roy Ungelbrecht briefly, but Laker Girls, Paula Abdul, obviously that was a classic, you know, Adam McKay thing where we see her, then they're gone, and then we see her again. And obviously she's obviously a big star, so they're going to, you knew she was going to be included in it. Give me, give me kind of the balance, the fact check from the book. Is she a big part of the book? How'd you like her portrayal? You know, it was a brief portrayal in, in the episode. I don't remember, if, and again, I apologize. I should have said I read the book when it came out almost seven, eight years ago. Um, right, so I mean, right. I remember, but I, I like the mention of Paula Abdul because she is important. I had to go look up the fact check to see when did she start with the Laker girls to be like, wow, how old was she? She's she's a CSUN. She's a CSUN girl. So I, I, I got to throw that in there. She went to Northridge. So Dog, there you go. Gil. So I didn't know she went yeah. to Van Nuys. Like, she is a Valley, right. Valley, Valley person all the way. So that was cool. I like that. I liked how she played, has a role because again, she kind of had a big role in kind of giving that Laker style with the Laker girls. So I love that. I loved it. Uh, so Spencer Haywood and, and I admit, I, 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 I kind of portend a little bit to kind of be a bit of a scholar about the history of the NBA. And I know a little bit about Spencer Haywood. I don't know a whole lot about it. I know obviously a lot more about Kurt flood because I've read a lot more about that in, in the context of major league baseball, but is it an overstep for me to say, Evan is Spencer Haywood kind of the Kurt flood of the NBA? Yeah, you could say that. Um, from what I know about Spencer Haywood, and I have not, there's more I can read about him, but he basically helped open the way for free agency in the NBA. I mean, Oscar Robertson, I think, had a big role in that too, but Spencer Haywood challenged. Um, well, the hardship you know, role, right? He was the hard, I think he was the first hardship guy who left before his college eligibility expired. I think it. that was that was his thing. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. You know, which which for, later did which later did open the door for free agency, of course, but. Yeah, he was because they talked. He mentioned about Kobe and and Kevin Garnett was were mentioned in the actual episode. Um, but just that 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 I mean, really, Evan, it was him and Kareem bonded because they were both outliers. That was the story. Yes, and yeah, so Spencer Haywood is absolutely important to the history of basketball for what he did, and I love how they brought him in there, and I love how um, they you know they're going to show him obviously winning the championship, but he's going to get a ring, and that's going to be great for him. But honestly, like, you know, his his role is important. So I'm glad that they showed him. And obviously, Wood Harris, such a phenomenal actor. It makes it even better. So, so good. So good. It, it, it's, if you haven't, and I apologize, this is a spoiler. I love the scene. So the way the episode sets up and you watch it, so you know, is so Magic's trying to get close to Kareem and Kareem's, you know, and then here comes <laughs> this guy who's just joined the team and he's hugging him and dapping him up. He's like, whoa, where, where did that come from? So I, I love that dynamic 
of this just the way the scene was written and constructed uh, by 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 the by the producers and the directors of that of that of that episode. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That was really cool. Um, I want to ask you. So this is great for me. Obviously, the relationship between Chick Hearn and Pat Riley I found hilarious. Kind of how Chick is schooling Pat. Now, Evan, you grew up with Chick, so give me a little bit about Chick's role in the book versus in the movie. But just, I mean, you're a child. I mean, I called you a son of Los Angeles. You really are a child of Chick Hearn because you grew up watching and listening to him on the simulcasts. I did. My first Laker memories were Chick Hearn, Stu Lance on simulcast on KCAL 9 and Fox and uh, Prime Ticket. That's how far back I go before Fox Sports came in. I go back that far. Um, uh-huh. I remember that. And so I was a little bit seeing how is Chick going to be portrayed because I hold Chick in high regard. I Chick is the greatest NBA announcer, and I hold him as the standard for everybody else. I was worried how they were going to show him because I didn't want them to like show him in some negative way you know, being kind of a jerk to somebody or whatever. Um, but it is interesting how he and Pat Riley are, are messing a little bit. I'm like, okay, I don't remember how it was in the book, but I do think that obviously they do show, um, I like some of the touches in episode five where they went, you know, where chick will go, we'll be back or whatever, whatever on the Lakers basketball network. And that would be how he said that, that the phrasing of that, it brought a smile to my face that I miss his voice so much. Um, so I do like that chick is in there. I love how they kind of have that in it. It's going to be fun because obviously Pat Riley goes from the broadcast booth to the sidelines, which hopefully they'll show. But, uh, yeah. I, I, I like that. What do you, what did you think about it? I just, you know, not having grown up with chick, it's just fascinating to me because I get, I get stories from chick from everybody, you know, like from random people that I used to work with who uh-huh. I didn't even know were sports fans who would talk about, you know, Sunday night, they go see grandma in Newberry park. They drive back to orange County and it was always the Lakers and the Lakers and Dodgers on the radio. It was either chick or Vin on the radio driving home. And they're not even sports fans, but they know who, you know, and that's the whole thing is chick kind of, he was a game show host. He was a bit of a celebrity, you know? And I remember watching the, there's the great ESPN doc, the 30 for 30 on Vlade Divac and yeah. how chick was the inner, you know, he ran the press conference, you know, he was really the, the, the voice and the face of the Lakers to anybody who was coming to Los Angeles. And just in terms of broadcasting, working with broadcasters who either encountered chick or work for chick or were influenced by chick. He, he there, there, it's an amazing number. He reminds me of the way the guys back East talk about, and it's a different generation, right? So chick, the guys who are influenced by chick are kind of my generation. I remember growing up in New Jersey that all the New York guys, it was Marty Glickman, but Glickman is kind of a generation before chick, you know? So all these guys, like all the Fordham guys, they were all Marty Glickman guys and all the guys, you know, I guys I work with like Isaac Lohenkron, people like that. They all were heavily influenced influenced by chick hearn so it's like almost like a great musician right it's like you hear and you talk to them and they just they can't help john ireland always talks about it because i went to broadcasting school because i got to listen to vin scully chick hearn and he was a raiders fan so when he was growing up the raiders the la raiders were bill king was the raider voice so he got to and bob bob miller's in that mix as well so you got to grow up listening to those four guys in los angeles and they had such a heavy influence on all the guys from la who were doing that job. And so I, I just love it. You know, like you laugh because we've all worked with color guys who need a little bit of direction. And I yeah. just thought, I found that funny that, you know, chick was so established at the point he was the alpha male. So you could tell, I mean, Pat Riley was a great player, Kentucky and they played for the Lakers played for a championship game with the Lakers. And here's chick just telling him, yeah, just follow my lead kid. You know? So I found that amusing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like to me, that's just, 
I, I like that idea. It's like, okay, Pat Riley's trying to find his way and Chick kind of helps him a little bit. Um, and it is cool because again, I grew up with Chick and Stu Lance. I mean, for a generation of, you know, basketball fans in LA, it was probably, I think it was Chick Hearn and Keith Erickson after, right. um, after Pat Riley left. So like, it is kind of cool to kind of see this, this relationship developing a little bit. So it is kind of fun. I, I like it. I like it a lot. Give me, give me some final thoughts. So we'll be coming up on episode six. I think it's a 10 episode series and this is your, this is your boyhood team. How cool is it to see this portrayal? Um, and, well, let me preface it. So for me, you know, I think 83 was the first year I really got into following the NBA. And that's obviously when the whole run was starting. And I think 83 though, was the Sixers that beat the Lakers and the Lakers and the Celtics won the next year. And then the Lakers kind of started their run or Lakers beat the Celtics the next year and started their run. Um, but so the last thing about episode five is, and this is old thoughts to the big West is, so there's the game which they play the San Diego Clippers. They were in San Diego at the time and they went in a buzzer beater by Kareem and then magic goes to hug Kareem. And there's the, <laughs> it's a classic thing of, Hey kid, there's 81 more games to go. So I found out, and it was my old, my broadcast partner, Alan Zinsmeister pointed this out to me that the guy who threw that pass to Kareem wasn't magic. That was one thing they changed. It was Don, the old Laker, Don Ford. And Don Ford played at Santa Barbara High, played at UC Santa Barbara, and then ended up in the Lakers. He got traded in the middle of the year that year to Cleveland. But he was on the Lakers roster opening day to make that pass. So that was the last little touch. And shout out AZ, my guy, for telling me that, telling me that Don Ford story. Because for many years, Don Ford was the color analyst on the radio broadcast for UC Santa Barbara. And wow. so I got to kind of know him a little bit. And it was really cool to chat with him. And I had no idea how 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 he was etched into Laker lore to the point where I know Carrick DeHart, who I got to work with as well, played at Santa Barbara. He said growing up in L.A. that his favorite Laker was Don Ford. In fact, at Santa Monica High, he wore 35 for Don Ford. So wow. Down for Don Ford, shout out! You left him out of the episode. You left him out of the episode, but you can't leave him out of our hearts. Hey, that is awesome. That's a great story there. I mean, that is a great <laughs> story, you. <laughs> what? Uh, so, get, so, anyway, final thoughts here. What are you looking forward to? Give me three things you're looking forward to in the next five episodes of this of this miniseries. All right. So, I want to see how 1980 the 80 finals is showed. Obviously. Kareem gets hurt, Magic Game 6, the legend is born. I'm going to see how that kind of plays out. Um, I'm curious to see how the Lakers-Celtics is portrayed. I mean, is it going to be, you know, fascinating, or is it going to be kind of like one-dimensional look at the Celtics, which I don't want to see. I would like to see a little bit more dimension to them. Um, and then also, I kind of want to see, uh, let's see if they put the baby Skyhook in. The baby Skyhook yeah. that Magic hit in 87 in game five, I believe, to beat the Celtics. And that kind of was like the death knell of the Celtics run. And the magic era began to really kind of emerge as he's the guy and the Lakers are the guy. Um, those are three things I got off the top. Well, for me, it's this. So I know Larry Bird's going to be in the series, right? Yes. So I want them there. And they showed there's a scene in the opening credits with George Gervin. So I'm wondering if there are other NBA stars are going to be incorporated in, you know, you know, personal bias. I'd love to see a Reggie Theus scene, but I don't know if we'll see that or not. <laughs> Reggie, Reggie Jr. could play him, you know. Um, so two is I, I've heard all these stories about the Forum Club, Evan. You know, ah. um, so I want to see what the forum club was really, really about. <laughs> uh, is that what got magic going on his trajectory, so to speak? Right. Uh, that's a big that that's a big thing. And then I really I mean, and this is going to start coming up 
is the whole coaching thing. So we ended episode five. You mentioned it earlier. McKinney has his bicycle accident going, you know, drive, riding his bike to go play tennis with Paul Westhead. And so the whole, you know, Westhead taking over, Riley becoming an assistant. What is the connection? You know, what is that relationship like? How does that foster? How is that connection made? And then obviously, listen, yeah, I'm looking forward to that whole playoff run and the interaction and who stays and who goes. Maybe they'll show Don Ford getting traded. But those are kind of the three <laughs> things, you know, like like because, it, it, you know, even for me, like I grew up, you know, Magic Bird, but I'm really a Jordan era NBA fan. So mm-hmm. what were what were the superstars like before the NBA was a thing? Right. Because the NBA was not what it was. In 1979, 1980, it certainly wasn't was what it is now, and it certainly was it wasn't what it was what, what I feel was the high point of the league from about 83 to maybe 97 or 98. So that's those are the things I'm interested in. I think those are all good, man. Like there's so much they can explore with this, and it really is going to kind of remind everyone: read Jeff Perlman's book, go buy it, go. Yeah, you know, you you sold me. You sold. I'm going to go get it. I'm going to go get. Go it. Get I'm going to go get it. So that's what a good. That's um, what a good show should do. It should make you want to read the yeah. original material just to kind of compare a little bit. Yeah. And it's funny because this is one of the few like, normally because it's everything's so fast track now. Normally when the book would come out, you'd read it and then the thing would come out later. This is one of the few things where the 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 the, the film version has come out first before the book is because I read a lot of sports books. So last thing before I let you go, I, I got to get your thoughts on it. Your <laughs> alma mater, for those who don't know. And by the way, follow Evan. He's a great follow on Twitter, on uh, Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, 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 yeah, I'm a Twitter, Instagram guy, but I know people like the Facebook. Um, USD, your alma mater, just hired former UCLA coach Steve Lavin as their head basketball coach. At least an hour ago, that's what everybody was saying. So maybe it changed. But give me your thoughts. I mean, that's a big deal for a school like USD in the West Coast Conference, which candidly, Evan, is just a tough league because you're really playing for third place behind Gonzaga and St. Mary's. And now with what San Francisco has been doing, you're almost playing for fourth place in that league. Yeah, no, WCC is is really competitive. And to try to be a team that's going to be a top, being the top six team, I think is a good spot to be. Like you're not going to contend for the WCC championship. You're obviously going to try to just get in and um, fit in where you can. But if, if it all goes down, as it's been reported right now, I love it. Like, look, Steve Lavin knows SoCal. He has an idea kind of what he can do over there. We know he's a good coach. Um, we know he's got ties there. There are people who still remember those UCLA teams he had with Baron Davis, Earl Watson, uh, Jerron Rush, and a few of those guys. I like it. Like, I, I, I don't know how USD pulled off Steve Lavin, but I'm, I'm hoping to see. I'm hoping to see some, uh, see where it goes. I mean, he, Steve Lavin had success at St. John's too. So we know he can recruit. So now we're going to see what he can do in that situation. I love it. I really, really love it. I like it. So so as soon as that was all tweeted out, the trolls took to it. They said, well, his last loss at St. John's was in the tournament to San Diego State. So at least he's used to losing to San Diego State. But what I, <laughs> what I love it for, Evan, is that now that UCSD is Division One, you got the Tritons. You got mm. the Toreros and you got the Aztecs, and hopefully they'll all play each other. I know UCSD and San Diego State played this year. For whatever reason, USD wouldn't play UCSD. Um, so hopefully you can get something going there now with you know Dutcher and Lavin and Coach Olin over at UC San Diego. Kind of get, get something going locally down there where you're fighting against each other, not just for recruits, but fighting on the court. 
I would host it. Like to me, they should try to make that a thing where you can try to say, hey, let's play each other. Let's try to, you know, build some buzz for the city. Because obviously San Diego State is going to have some buzz for a while. But I think, you know, hey, USD needs to have some kind of relevance where that program can do some things. And if UCSD ends up being decent, I mean, hey, why not? Why not make it something? Because again, San Diego's a great city. It's a good market. The fans there are, you know, they like a good sports team when it's when it's rolling. So, I mean, why not? Why not try to make yeah. San Diego basketball a thing, especially when you have players in high school that are like, you know, turning out some pretty good, you know, who are going to like big do a do a day long event. Do call it the Bill Walton Classic. It's a day long event. Three Ooh. college, three three high school games in the morning, three college basketball games in the evening, and you know whatever, charge a hundred bucks for it and give the uh, give the proceeds to some charity in San Diego. We'll call it the uh, you know you can coordinate that, Evan. You can talk to Walton. But the last thing before I let you go, what what's your schedule looking like the last month? What do they got you doing over at the the Commercial Appeal? Ooh, well, so it's right now Memphis is in spring practice mode, so I am covering spring football where I can. But obviously with the Grizzlies in the playoffs we're going to kind of have all hands on deck or all hands be ready because the Grizzlies are the second best team in the NBA by record. Um, the John Morant is going to be a bigger star in the playoffs. This young team is going to have more chances to shine. I'm going to probably be helping out with that a little bit in some fashion. So um, it's going to be a fun time in Memphis. It hasn't really been playoff fever like this in a probably five years. Like last year they made the playoffs for the first time and it was slowly starting to get, some of that, and they were starting to reopen um, capacity a little bit more in FedEx Warm, but this time, full arena. People are excited. This team is really, really good. Um, I'm excited for it. So that's what my agenda is. So if you love the NBA playoffs and you haven't seen the Memphis Grizzlies, watch and enjoy a team that's on the rise. They're a great team. Um, again, do I think they can win a championship? I don't know. But do you want to see a young team to kind of get in on the ground floor and see what they can do? Yes. So that's what I got coming up right now. Uh, and last thing. So follow this guy on Instagram because, Evan, I got to admit, I, you know, I was jo- I was we we're joking about Kareem earlier. There was a scene where he was listening to jazz. I love your Instagram post where you just you're finding a new musical artist that day. You're just kind of grooving along to the whatever the record of the CD. Uh, <laughs> your your musical taste mirrors mine because it's all over the place like mine is. So I just love learning kind of, okay, what's Evan listening to today? It's pretty cool. You haven't done one of those. I know you've been busy, but when you're in season and doing those musical posts, they're always hilarious. Hey, I am just a guy that loves music. Like my Instagram is more music friendly than anything. It's like, oh, uh-huh. I guess I'm I'm going to be the guy who's playing records and like being that old, I guess, old guy. But I'm like, hey, I love it. Right. Like, this is this is my bag, I guess. Like, I love it as much as sharing my sports stuff. So, yeah, I got a lot of music taste on there. You probably saw something I posted today that was cool. So, eBarns, yeah. eBarns4 is the Instagram if you want to follow me there. Twitter is Evan underscore B. So, follow along and enjoy the fun. The great Evan Barnes. Let me know when you're back in town, sir. I'll take you for a falafel somewhere. But uh, thanks again. Always great to chat with you. And you're on the hook. You're still on the hook for a, uh, a Stranger Things podcast when the new season comes out. Gil, you know I got you, man. Do you need me? Call me. I'll be there, and I owe you that L.A. trip, man. Let's make it happen. All right, Evan. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Yes, sir.